Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I am here for day one of the Overland Expo. It is very well attended. There are people everywhere and booths everywhere, but I got to take a few minutes to spend some time with a longtime friend, Jim Markle, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Red Ox Bags. Now, these are bags I have used around the world, and this podcast is not really so much about that product, but it is my appreciation for them and the fact that I've used them on seven continents that really led me to want to have a conversation with Jim. And we've also gotten to know each other from some travels together as well. And I learned a little bit about his story, which I find fascinating. And I think you all will very much enjoy today. So thank you, Jim, for being on the podcast today. Awesome, Scott. Great to be here. And now a word from one of the supporters of our podcast, Red Arc. At Overland Journal, we go off-grid every chance we get. From the most technical trails to crossing continents, it's no match for Red Arc's Topro Elite. This brake controller has been torture tested in the toughest place on the planet, the Australian Outback. Easy to install. Its dash mount remote head makes for quick calibration and ensures you won't be hitting your knees. You can seamlessly switch between proportional for the highway and user controlled for the steepest, most rugged trails out there. You may not trust the terrain you're on, but you can always trust Red Arc's Tow Pro Elite. Tow with confidence by visiting redarkelectronics.com. One of the first things that come to mind is how your company was founded. Your father's involvement and his involvement in your life and his military career is is so interesting. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your dad? Well, everybody, you know, says, who's your hero? And I think Superman or whatever. And my Superman was my father. Mm. And um, he led by example. Uh, mm. He spent nine years in the Marine Corps and 11 years in the Army. He was an officer. He's, he was enlisted, started out, you know, Mustanged up through Vietnam, mm. uh, three tours with the Green Berets, and then he switched over to the Marine Corps and finished out his career and wow. uh, Marine Recon. Yeah, amazing. And so your dad, he served in in uh, Vietnam. What other areas of the world did he serve in as well? Well, he was in Okinawa and Germany. I was born in Italy. Okay. And while he was in OCS, so that was in the 60s. And uh, we were all over. So with, with two branches of, of the service under his belt, I ended up transferring to 17 different schools growing up wow. all over the United States. And I sometimes forget all the different places I've lived. And yeah, then I'll see sure. something on the news. I'm like, I used to live there. <laughs> and that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is that ability to travel around the world that way. How did that prepare you for your own travels, your own adventures? Think back on some of the skills you gained by living in all these countries and maybe share with the audience what you feel is kind of the fundamentals or the foundations of what you learned as a traveler. One of the things is when you're always a new guy, new kid, you know, oh, sure. you're, you get tested and you learn to be observant, right? Mm. So you come into situations, social situations, and, and you need to make friends quickly. Sure. And don't even make a lot of friends, but you better make one. Mm. And um, being observant, that, that I think that uh, that was something that developed naturally within me. So you learn the lay of the land. If you live in the South, you you, know, you learn how the Southern people live and sure. in the North and Pennsylvania or, you know, when we were on recruiting duty. Sure. There, then I'm back out to California a few times and sure. learn how to surf. And yeah, so you just kind of like accept whatever culture you're in mm. at the time. Yeah. And uh, so you're kind of a chameleon, but it also influences the way you think. You don't mm. realize it at the time, but you're actually developing skill sets that will serve you later on in life. And when you look back and when you, and it's just so wonderful to hear you talk about your father in the way that you do, because I feel very much the same about my own dad, but what were some of the key lessons that you took away from him? Like when you think back on your dad's life, or maybe even the things that he sat down with you and shared that were important for him, for you to know, what were some of those key lessons that you feel like? 
like you took away from your dad? Discipline, self-discipline, mm. make a promise, keep it. Yeah. And you know, never quit. You, yeah. You're, you're capable of way more than you than you realize. Mm. And you wouldn't really never accept no for an answer. You know, sure. I'd say, well, I didn't, why didn't you clean your room or whatever? And to the point where, you know, cause I was always on the go. Right. And so, mm. you know, if I could get out and go to the beach before cleaning the room, it, he'd, he'd make me stand inspection on Sunday mornings <laughs> before I could go to the beach. And oh, especially wow. once I got a car, you know, cause I try to slip out early in the morning. He's like, not so fast, you know? <laughs> uh, so, and he taught me field craft and bushcraft and, um, how to think asymmetrically. Yeah. And yeah. so he was always challenging me in ways that for my personality, I was very, um, pretty wild child, as sure. they say. And, sure. uh, but I was very independent and headstrong. And so at 17, he shipped me off to the Marine Corps <laughs> and, uh, they, they, you know, they tampered that down a little bit, but I was oh, still, yeah. I was still pretty wild in the Corps too. Yeah. Well, and, and I, same thing for me, my, my grandfather was in the Marines uh, he was a chief warrant officer he served Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, wow. and he is certainly one of the heroes in my life and has had such an impact in my life. And he only passed away last year at 95 years old. Three Purple Hearts. I mean, an amazing guy. And that was one of the things that I remember so much from him when I was growing up is that he was tenacious. Like when he went from the military into the civilian world, he realized that people give up too early. And I remember him telling me that. I remember that was one of the few things that he shared with me is that you just don't give up. Right. Just keep and he built his own kind of empire of his own business after he got out of the military and it made such a difference for our entire family after that happened so it's pretty amazing to see the lessons that we learn in the military that we how they translate to the civilian space so maybe that's the next question for you is how long did you spend in the marines what were some of the experiences that you had that you'd like to share with the audience that you think were formative to your life mm -hmm. what lessons what real lessons did you take away from that experience well, the overarching lesson from the military for me would be that you learn everything you ever needed to learn about leading people right mm, there. Yeah. And I served for four years and, you know, crazy as my old man, I loved, wanted to jump out of airplanes and mm. started out as a parachute rigger and air delivery. And then I was at the pool one day and doing uh, shallow uh, water, long distance swimming for money. And <laughs> the gunnery sergeant caught on to it and confiscated the bedding and <laughs> had a company party. And then a month later, I got orders to recon battalion in California. And sure. he, he kind of looked at me as like, I got just the place for you. And <laughs> yeah. uh, put, put that energy to good work. Right, right. I was a pretty mischievous corporal. By the time I got out, it was a, an an NCO and, but I was pretty much, you know, running a buck within the company and sure. organizing and, you know, having parties and then doing adventure trips with the guys. We'd all pile, you know, our Serapis on our mountain bikes and head off into the boonies for the weekend. Sure. And, and so it was kind of like, it, it was a lot of fun. I learned a ton, um, you know, no combat time. Mm. I was in from 85 to 89, but the training and stuff is pretty intense. A lot of injuries and stuff like that. People get hurt with yeah, a few fatalities sure. and things like that, that, that definitely show you that it's not just fun and games you mm -hmm. know, when you're serving it can be taken out really quickly. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, when I look back on my time in the air force, it was just the fact that the military gave me a framework that I desperately needed at 19 years old. I just didn't, I was, I felt like I was a ship with all of this potential. All the sails were up. I was ready to go into the world, but I, I had no rudder. So I just felt like I was being blown around in every direction. And I don't speak for anybody else. It's just from my experience, the military, it gave, it helped me build that rudder of realizing that if you set a goal and you aim towards it, a lot of times you'll get there. And to also leave with the GI Bill, I don't know if that was something you also were able to take advantage of, but for me to be able to pay for my education that I wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise, it paid for my first home. Those kinds of things, it made 
the military gave me such a leg up in the in the areas that I needed that I right. desperately needed. So. Yeah, it was, I think, the starting point for my life. The four years went by so fast that rather mm. than go to college, I went to the military. Sure. I tried to go to college after the military, mm. and um, that's about the time I started into business for myself. And before I realized sure. that I had employees and big responsibilities, and, and I and I walked away from college after about a year and a half. and. Mm. I don't have any regrets with that. I think it's a. I think it's actually a great choice for most people. There are certainly professions that require education, like if you want to become a lawyer or whatever, or doctor. a doctor. Yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. No trial and error for that. But certainly the the pursuit of business. When I look back on my degree, I don't think that I really took much away from that that I applied to my own business. But I definitely learned on the job when I worked in other businesses, and I had I was lucky to have wonderful bosses, and they taught me so much about being a leader and a businessman. And you had that in your dad. So if I remember correctly, your dad founded Red Ox and then you started working with him. How did that all happen? So I was at the Paraloft there and at Camp Pendleton and the phone rings and it's senior on the phone. He's like, I need some webbing, thread, and some other stuff. He goes, you know, go down to the, the DMRO locker, which is the decommissioning locker and send me some stuff. Send me a care package. Sure. So the Red Ox was founded on petty larceny. <laughs> and uh, so I, 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 I took a foot locker, filled it full of thread and webbing and put it on the Greyhound bus to Billings, Montana. Wow. So dad's last duty station was the, he was the NCOIC of training, non-commissioned officer in charge of training for the fourth recon uh, up there in Billings, Montana, mm. when they had a unit back there. So um, anyway, and then I forgot all about it. Three years later or so, I get out and then um, he asked me to come join him, co- you know, gave me the talk. I was living in the mountains of Colorado. Uh-huh. Uh, Still it, feral? Oh, I went completely <laughs> feral. I bought a Harley. and That uh, is feral. Yeah. And, and moved up to a little cabin that had no hot running water. <laughs> and I, the rent for the year was 1800 bucks. Wow. And uh, it you chopped your own wood, you know, the deal. Amazing. And, and it was a great year. I made actually zero money that year. Mm. And I just lived off my savings and kind of decompression. You know, if I was interesting. By that time I'd been in, I would moved over to four recon. And so a lot of intense training and yeah. like the cycle, I hadn't realized the psychological pressure of continuous high speed training like mm. that, what it does to your mind. Sure. It spins you up tight. And uh, I didn't realize how tight I was. And yeah. um, so it took a whole year and did absolutely nothing but ride motorcycles and mm. hunt deer and chase women. It yeah. was- <laughs> gotcha. So that year you were in the cabin because I can see how this translates to your love of overland travel as well. Talk to me a little bit about that experience. How did you you unwind? Like what were some of the things that you found really made the difference? Was it that you just had moments of quiet or what was it that really helped you unwind to the point that you could take your dad's call for the next step? Solo camping. I, mm. I would, I would take my rucksack and my dog and, and load up a, a you know, handgun and just head off into the, into the hills around mm. Mike's Peak area. And, wow. and I would camp for three or four or five days alone with yeah. a dog. And, and I continued that practice for quite a few years. Mm. Um, and then I bought a Toyota Land Cruiser, a little FJ40 with a awesome. 327 in it. And, oh, nice. And we would, by then, you know, we just would have our adventures. And my dad, at that point, he gave me about a year and he came down to Colorado and, and gave me the talk. Sure. Son, you know, you need to, you need yeah. to get direction in your life again. I don't mind the long hair, but <laughs> so, and I, and I thought about it. He left and, and I, you know, and I, let's just say, um, 
I had an incident with, with somebody in, yeah. in a fist fight and I was wanted for, for assault. So I like, I jumped on the bike and booked it to Montana. Yeah. And as good a place to hide out. Yeah. It gets the place to hide out. So, and from that point, you know, the school started and I started like straightening my life out a little mm. bit. Um, by the time I was 26, I quit drinking, uh, which was a big turning point. For sure. I always think I was using alcohol to cope with some probably form of minor PTSD, you mm-hmm. know, been through a lot in my life, you know, a lot of close scrapes. Sure. Uh, uh, when I say I was pretty wild as a child, I was definitely on the outer limits of keeping it together. Oh yeah. yeah. yeah a lot of risk taking. Sure. Poor impulse control as they say. Yeah, sure. So dad, at that point we were doing, Redox was founded in the weight training category. We did lifting straps, that. weight training belts. We worked for companies like Joe Weeder. Uh, Para- How cool is that? That was awesome. Yeah. And so we were like this little manufacturing company that started with nothing and we were servicing business to business. And then that was in the nineties. And then as China rose, we mm. got squeezed out mm-hmm. and dad wanted to retire. And so that's when I was getting more into like the hunting phase of my life. And so I was started making hunting gear and doing hunting shows and then travel bags and stuff like that. Cause I kept breaking everything that I've ever owned unless it was military grade. Sure. Demand. I'm pretty hard on gear. So yeah. I just started making my own stuff. And mm-hmm. then we eventually exited the fitness category, which we now just kind of brought back for our 35th anniversary. That's kind of fun though. Yeah. Just a couple of things that. and honor, honoring dad. We, uh, we did a poster of him when he was in his, in his bodybuilding days. He used to be a semi-professional bodybuilder. Amazing. He was a beast. I mean, big arm arms and you know, sure. So I never put on the size that he did. He sure. had to be, I, I, he started me in the gym at like 11 years old and all I did was get scrawnier and, <laughs> and like more wiry. Sure. But, uh, it so, has its place too. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so pound for pound, I was very strong, but sure. you know, but I never got any size. Yeah, sure. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is like, what makes a great bag? Because one of the things that I have noticed is that there are more and more companies that are now also offering soft goods. Um, and some of of it is good and some of it is not good. What are some of the things that if you were to give people advice on what to look for in luggage, in soft luggage, in bags that you would store your equipment in your vehicle, what are some of the key components that you would recommend people look for? Well, I like redundant failure points. Number one, it's kind of a mill spec civilian market philosophy. So it, sure. it'll start to break here. There's a backup point in it. So I build things like that. Less pockets is better. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a young rigger, I would make the officers bags and trade them for parachute jumps and they mm. would say, you know, you can, I'll take you up again two more times. And so some days I'd get four or five jumps. How and, cool is that? You know, bribe the pilots, right? Sure. And so that's how the military works, folks. No, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> and so less is more minimalism. Yeah. And then, and it, and it even goes to the point to what, you know, you don't want to, you think you'd want a pocket for everything mm. until you go hunting through a bunch of pockets. And sure. so I've gotten into color coding and I've been into it forever in a day. And so I'll color code interior compartments, like little packing cubes that we do with, with brighter colors. Sure. And everybody's like, why don't you make things in camouflage? And I'm like, I literally, even though I served active duty four years, I was born in the military. I feel yeah. like I did my 20. <laughs> sure, you did, literally. <laughs> and uh, so things like that is what I look for. You know, uh, rugged, reliable, you know, that's great. And, you know, some of the stuff, you know, that if you look at some products that are made, they're built in a way that they're, how should I put this? They're engineered for manufacturing, not mm. for use. Oh, Sure. And so in the, what engineering for manufacturing means is like you lower the cost mm. in, in a lean way and mm. you just keep cutting steps out. Sometimes cutting those steps out hurts the dependability of the product. Right. Building and handcrafting in a way makes our products, you know, I, I believe the toughest, strongest products that they can possibly be. Yeah. Now, are they the easiest and fastest to build? 
No, but we do that for a reason. Yeah. And, and, and you do make them in the United States. Don't absolutely. You? And yeah. we source, you know, we're like Barry compliant, which is the Barry amendment. We could, we could sell directly to the military if we wanted sure, to, but sure. I don't, that's not the model. Yeah. There's a couple things that I've noticed on, on the soft bags is you've got to have a way to lash them down. That seems to be really important in the vehicles because we're, we're talking about putting bags on racks. We're talking about putting bags in the storage compartment in the back of an SUV or in the back of a pickup. So having rings or loops that you can tie the bags down with. Another thing that I like to do is tie bags together. So carabiner, two corners of two bags together, which now becomes essentially a net if you keep building it across the load surface and then you lash down at the corners. So now you don't have these bags flying around on the inside of a vehicle. It's also one of the things that I notice is a lot of bags A small bag will have a zipper, maybe even a waterproof zipper. But then when you get to their biggest bag, it has the same zipper. That doesn't work. I've had those failure points where the small bag, you can't load it up with enough weight to have a zipper failure. It's the right zipper for that bag. But when you get to a 60 liter bag or an 80 liter bag or a 100 liter bag, and it still has this very small waterproof zipper on it, that's where I tend to see failures is, you know, you drop one of the handles and then just splits the whole thing open because they can't take that kind of pressure. And what I noticed with your bags, this is not a, this is not about Redox, but it, it happens to be a good example is that you'll have one of these little belt packs and it'll have the same zipper on it as a hundred liter bag. So they're all really built. Well, like I said earlier, I was really hard on gear. I still am. I'll buy the best and beat it. It's kind of a philosophy that I live by. You know, I don't mind spending money on quality, Sure, but if, you know, if I want to hammer a nail with my pocket knife, it better be able to handle it. So I've got a nice Chris Reeves titanium knife that I've had for 20 years and Mm -hmm. I've shown it to people and they're like, that's really used. I'm like, but it's not broken. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that a lot of, a lot of us are trying to pay attention to now. I find myself doing that is if I can buy something that will last long enough for me to give it to my nephews. Those purchases start to feel a little bit better to me now. I I realize that I just get this overload of equipment. I mean, the industry that we're in, we're always getting equipment, but it's interesting the things that stay. We'll donate to charities and we'll give it to some of our other editors, but the things that I tend to keep personally are those components that should last a lifetime because I just don't want the frustration of having a failure in the middle of Africa. I mean, I believe in our conversations that part of what made you build these bags the way that you do is because you want to go to the middle of Africa, you want to go hunting, and you don't want to have equipment failure in the middle of nowhere. When you talk about gear like that, you just talk about the Chris Reeves knife. What are some other pieces of kit that you have just come to know and love throughout the years? What are some other gadgets that you're just like, this is the one? So when it comes to like new gadgets, so right now I'm, I'm, I'm really in love with these new Goal Zero pop-up lanterns. So yeah. every few years when when I want to refresh the kit, I'll hop on down to the outdoor store and grab some stuff and just see what's out on the market. There's Julie string lights with the phone yeah. charger. I bought that as well for this trip because my old stuff, the, remember the blow-up ones they had? Oh, oh yeah. Those are, those, are, those are toast. And then like my standby gear, believe it or not, I still have a, like a 1940s mess kit. Nice. And I, and I don't hike with it or anything, but I still have it in the, in the rig in, sure. the, in the sprinter. I'm pretty minimalist though. I mean, uh, Nalgene bottles. Yeah. I, I love those things. And then we have Secchi edge 
which is a brand out of Japan, makes okay. tweezers and personal uh, grooming because field sanitation is very important. To, it is. I mean, they beat that into us, literally. You yeah. Know, taking, you have to stay clean in the field. Yeah, trench foot's a big problem. Yeah. I've got a basic tent that I picked up. It's a green sport tent from South Africa. I've been mm. using that for years, a National Luna fridge mm-hmm. that I bought from Equip One when they literally first started, probably from the first container. Yeah. Because we were using those in Africa and yeah. those fridges are amazing. They are. You know? They and last forever. Yeah. So I've got a very basic kit. And uh, I think when I was last night, when I laid down to sleep, I'm sleeping on my butler bag. From, those things uh, are awesome. Yeah. The things like, everybody's like, I'll turn on my heater. I'm like, dude, I don't need a heater. You know, it's, <laughs> those are, those are made in Utah, aren't Cedar they? Cedar City, Utah. That's right. Yeah. And uh, those things are gnarly. Yeah. So I, I'll take that bag a Rollicott, which is another domestic product. So mm. you see a little theme here where yeah, I'm buying sure. a lot of U.S., European, or South African made gear. I'll put that in a big duffel. That'll go below the plane. Mm. That's my home. You know, no, sometimes no tent. I'll just sleep under the stars, especially because I really have come to like West Africa. Sure. And, and then I'll have a carry-on bag with no more than three of anything. No more. Mm. And usually two, like two pairs of shorts, wear one pair of long pants. So I wear my nice outfit on the airplane. Yep. Sport coat even sometimes. Sure. And then I put all my other gear in my carry-on bag. And then I have a personal item, which carries a pair of Leica binoculars, mm. which I've had for 20 some odd years. Mm. And then a couple of different Surefire flashlights that I, I scored from an old Marine Corps buddy who worked <laughs> at Surefire. Yeah, sure. And other than that, that's about all I'll take. And then you can always find a lean-to, a hut somewhere. Hell, totally. I, Plenty sleep, of abandoned Sleep huts. under the sure. truck if you have to. It's a good um, spot. And the lions don't want to kind of come around the smell of diesel fuel. They don't that's, really typically like yeah. that smell. At least that's what my African friends tell me. Sure. So I can go to sleep at night. <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they tell you. <laughs> that's what they tell the tourists. Yeah, you'll be fine, man. <laughs> be, be just fine. Oh, those are all great. Those are all great recommendations for sure. Now that we're getting into the topic of travel a little bit, uh, let's talk about some of your favorite places on the planet and maybe share your more interesting stories. What's, what's one Jim's top one or two most interesting stories of your travels? Wow. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> which I, one should go in the book? Yeah. Which one should go in the book? Uh, there's a couple there, you know, I would say like the most, one of the most inspiring trips I had was a trip to Namibia mm. and we went and did some volunteer work. And I work with a friend of mine who's a medical professional and we bring um, medicine for trachoma for river blindness mm. and out to the orphanages and the hospitals. And we also raise money for mosquito nets and mm. we'll go there and we'll buy the nets in Africa, load them onto the land cruiser and take them to the orphanages and the hospitals. Sure. Found it. That type of distribution system works really well mm. rather than trying to go to individual villages. Sure. So you'd give the most where you can. And so we went through Atosha and then across to the West through the Honi River Valley, which you've been through. Um, and Hama, my friend Hama, he he served in the South African Defense Forces. So he knows sure. all these great campsites that are nobody knows about and, and awesome. nobody will ever know because I'm never going to give them up. <laughs> <laughs> You're not geotagging that spot. <laughs> no, sir. And so, and then we came down to the Skeleton Coast and then run down the skeleton oh, coast. And that's part of what I really love about traveling, you know, and, and living in Eastern Montana is a lower population. Mm-hmm. The population in the world has grown a lot in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And so finding the least populated places where I tend to be able to see the stars and not have any security issues and things like that are, are more, I would say the more inspiring trips, you know, the elephants cruising, you know, riding along on the roof and elephants at arm's distance. And in my friend in the cab going, he goes, what am I going to tell your wife when you get killed? I'm like, tell her 
I had a great time. <laughs> a smile on my face. <laughs> and then probably like the craziest story, I guess, not the craziest, but one of the more craziest stories. Um, early on in my, probably the first time I went on a, a Land Rover trip with these guys, we had three L Land Rover vehicles over a magazine shoot. Mm -hmm. And I sunk the one in the Dolores River. I remember that story. Oh, man. And that with was- With Ben Edmondson on the top. Right. He was it, on the rack yep. trying to film it or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And I felt like such a heel, you know, yeah. just, just because they said they screamed stop and I hit the brakes and the, the, the vehicle sucked water and died. Sure. Total of a brand new Land Rover. Yeah. My insurance company then took special notice of me, dropped me after 17 years. Oh, wow. Had paid out. But, you know, that was kind of one of the more embarrassing things. But, but I, of course, you know, I've traipsed all over the Philippines and- Guam and Korea and the markets. Yeah. I used to really love to eat a lot of street food. I love to cook and, you know, you've eaten a lot of my cooking on the You're, trail. Yeah. Great cook. And so that's one of the things I always tend to find myself in. I'm good to go ride along. Like some mm -hmm. people want to like, oh, I've got to take my vehicle and I can drive. Okay. I mean, the guys taught me how to drive sure. decent enough and I don't have to have my vehicle. Sure. So that's why I say the best trips are the ones where I've got a duffel bag and that's it. And I yeah. just show up and perform. And I, like I said, I love to cook in the field. It's one of, you know, I love to cook anyway, but cooking in the fields always provides some challenge. The wind's going to blow, the rain's sure. going to go. And so that that's the aspects of the travel that I really like. That's interesting that you mentioned the cooking because we haven't really talked about that much on the podcast. But one of the things that I remembered from traveling with you is it is a way to bring a bunch of people that kind of know each other, but don't know each other really well together is you give them a little bit of food, maybe a couple cocktails, and it just people start to get around the fire and they get around this great meal. And it is a, a wonderful way to kind of set the stage for a trip. Yes. It, it's you, the logistics of, of having like over 10 people on a Baja trip mm -hmm. when we were, we were filming, trying to film a pilot for a TV show. Sure. It was a lot of work, you know, and you're talking the meals, like 45 meals a day, you know, and and then you pick up, tear down, move again and do it sure. again. And you get to know people and their habits. And we had a uh, another former Marine with us along Taylor Congleton. He's a Land Rover fanatic out of Vermont. And that guy's so big. I had to hide food for him because <laughs> everybody would. He's a big guy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so, you know, quite the metabolism. Yeah. Sure. And ben, ben Edmonds is a big dude too. But so I'd have to like, you know. I keep Ben from eating all of Taylor's food, you know? And so it's like, so and then the other guys, you know, they're like, like, like Jordan and stuff. I would be like, he's 135 pounds. You get one serving, you know? <laughs> but you can't let him see you give the big guy an extra slice. No doubt. You know? And so yeah, that's funny. Yeah. It's, those are the little things you learn about cooking and then what foods to buy that, that last, what to put in the fridge, what, you know, can go in the cool, you know, like a cool dry box. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of stuff to, to, to figure out. And there's great tips. And of course, and yeah. And a lot of people, they don't know that you can, you don't have to refrigerate eggs. They'll keep for several weeks. So just put them in the cool dry box and, and then you don't have to take up fridge space. And another thing too, is, is if you get a 12 pack of whatever, just put the drinks that you need for the next couple of days and then feed into the fridge because the drinks don't need to be kept refrigerated. Most drinks don't. Yeah. So those are those little tricks that allow you to go with a smaller fridge. I think that oftentimes people go with too big of a fridge, like even sitting here in the Scout right now, it has space for an 80 or 90 liter, but I've only got a 55 liter in here because I just feed into the fridge. Right. I, I tend to put the delicate things in there. Sure. The, the, the greens and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, for that sure. Need to, that need to be refrigerated. Some of the crew is like insisted that their beer is like, well, let's put the beer in the Yeti. You know, but I'm like, I bought this fridge for my beer. I'm like, let's just put the beer in the Yeti and yeah. be done. You know, it, it totally works great in there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about street food. What is some of your favorite places 
on the planet that you've had street food. Is there a memorable meal? Absolutely. Okay. Let's Uh, talk about that. We were in Korea for for Operation Team Spirit and um, we were downtown one night, a bunch of us, and they have these like little egg carts where they take the egg and it's a coal fired hot plate. Okay. And they lay cabbage and egg in there and some sort of meat. Okay. Let's just say it's meat. <laughs> and they cook Don't it in like it. a crepe and then they roll it up when they put some hot sauce and the kimchi on it. Oh my God. One night, three of us stood around this cart at like two o'clock in the morning. We ate everything that lady had. She must've had a flat of eggs and three jar heads. Just like, we just scarfed them all. I love that. Yeah, just you like, made her day. Yeah. Yeah. We cleaned, cleaned her out, sent her home at three o'clock in the morning with a bunch of money. And, and Oh, that's so, so, that's so great. We had a similar experience in Baja. We get to this little, this little taqueria and all they did was shrimp tacos. So they were super specialized and we cleaned them out. They had no more shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> Us gringos, we ate every taco that they had. I love it. That's so good. They were and they were wonderful little family. It was great. So on a motorcycle trip through Costa Rica, we stopped in some little town down south of or north of Puente Arenas, somewhere along the coast there. And sure, we. I'm like, I wasn't going any further. I, I haven't ridden a motorcycle in a while, and we had us on those little 125s, <laughs> and I was just hurting. I'm like, and the guys are they're terrible. They're 15 years younger than me, and they're like, oh, it's no problem. And I'm like, dude, I'm not going any further. <laughs> and there was five of us, and uh, so we stayed there until we ate them out of food and they're like, we have no food. You guys need to leave. <laughs> so we, we moved on down the coast and That's good, uh, man. down to uh, Haco and after that, but yeah, it's just, those are the, the, you know, the, the street food is, I can consider myself a connoisseur of street food and, okay. and okay. Uh, Guatemala and places like that, oh, the, the so chicken good. that they do where they cook it once and then they get it ready to cook when you order it and they, they dice it again with a cleaver and then they infuse it with something. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. That is like heaven on earth. It's so good. Yeah. I like to cook like that. I like to cook in cast iron. I'm a wild game. You know, I hunt, so I'm pretty good with wild game. Um, Here in the fridge, I've got some bison I, you know, brought down from Montana Mm. and I've been cooking it for our campmates and they're like, what is this? Yeah. Some of the best meat I've ever had was wild game. I mean, I had bison prime rib one time that blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. And then I had this Elan steak in, where was I at? I had the Elan steak. I think I was in, I was in Namibia when I had the Elan steak and I've had it a few times, but that particular moment in time where all the stars aligned, I had had a great day in Northern Namibia and I ended up at this little place and, and it was just unbelievable. I don't eat as much meat as I used to, but when I do, I try to find wild game because I always feel good after I eat it. Yeah. I don't know if it's you or you have the same experience, but like I don't sleep in Africa. Mm. Like the day begins like before the crack of dawn and I go, go, go. And I just, I don't know. It's something weird about that place. It's just, I feel so charged up. And I wonder, cause I felt the same thing. And there's a lot of the travelers that we know talk about how special Africa is to them, that they even feel like that they've come home. And I think just think about the history of humanity. I mean, it all kind of started there. And so I think that genetically we kind of feel alive. We feel a little bit charged up in that place. I mean, way back in our hypothalamus, we know what a lion is. Like the first time I heard a lion roar, I knew exactly what that was. No, I didn't need to ask. Hey, what's that sound? I knew that was a lion. Yeah. (laughs) Like I knew way down in my core that like, that's something that wants to eat me right now. And that was, and that's fun. It's fun to feel like you move down the food chain. Right. And then of course the snakes. And as I like to joke, you know, curiosity will kill you in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, we we forget the fact that we are we are very easy game in that continent. I yeah. mean, we are very easy to eat. And well, there's no rescue, right? Yeah, it's self rescue. You know, sure. unless you happen to be close to a city, but and even then, 
I don't know. I mean, South yeah. Africa's got outstanding medical facilities they if do. you can get to them. Sure. Yeah, that's a that reminds me of a great book. It's called Death in the Tall Grass, and it's one it's one of the best books I've ever read about humans mostly surviving these encounters with wild animals. So I, uh, you know, for years I exhibited at Safari Club International. That's so right. I, and a lot of African friends and friends from all over the world, New Zealand and places. And every so often, one of you, someone limping through the convention center, and I'd be like, "Oh, a leopard got you!" And, and it takes months, sometimes years to heal after a mauling because their their claws are full of nasty, nasty Mm, little infectious stuff. Sure. It starts to make your, uh, make your flesh die. Oh, oh. terrible, man. <laughs> but, but I love that. Even that feeling of you go to a little game lodge and, and you've got to, you got to have your escort to get you back to your room. And at first I'm like, ah, it's, yeah. it's just right over there. It's, and then, and they're like, eh, well, you can't see all this stuff. There's, there are leopards out here yeah. and they've had, they've seen them. And so that's why you have the guy with the gun and the, and the torch. And so. the, the elephants can walk so silently. You know, it's they can, insane. They walk it's between insane. the buildings and they'll tiptoe through the garden and, and, and take insane. vegetables. And yeah, it's just probably not recommended, but I was in Zimbabwe with some friends and the challenge comes and, you know, we went swimming in Lake Kariba, which is foolish, you know, I filled mean, with crocs. It, it is. Yeah. So, but we're out in the middle. So they circle the boat. Okay. This is after promising. <laughs> is that what you not, told yourself? Yeah. This is after promising not to do this. And I jumped into the middle of Lake Kariba on a hot day. It was hundred degrees. You know, I jumped in and I got out pretty quick, but the rush, the yeah. rush that I got. Oh my God. It was like the first time I jumped out of an airplane. Sure. So of course I'm there and we're at the lodge. We get it to the lodge that night and there's a hippo on the lawn. And my <laughs> friend looks over me and goes, you're not a real Zimbo unless you can slap a hippo on the ass. <laughs> and I don't know if people know this, but hippos are the biggest killers in Africa. They are. And, and that was the second biggest rush I ever got. <laughs> Were you successful? Oh yeah, I slapped it on the booty. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. that is the first time I have ever heard of somebody trying that. Yeah. Well, so, I'm glad you're still sitting here. I yeah. Mean, you know, sometimes you got to take some risks. You know, yeah. to have some fun. But it's not something that I, you know, I don't seek death. But it, it's definitely I like being out there on the edge. And you know, we were, you know, I was joking with you about different things that I've thought of through the sure. years. And I don't know if you want to hear something that I wrote. Okay, I'd love to. Yeah. My ego died. I am still alive. Walking the warrior's path, it's where I thrive. Traveled to the edge, looked death in the eye, turned before he looked back, much to my surprise. On a starry night, the leopard stepped by. Fear not the rapture of the deep, chase your dreams until you sleep. So I wrote that about a year ago at the nice. start of the pandemic. Yeah. I was feel, I was just sitting in an airport and I yeah. just, for some reason, I felt like, will I ever go on another adventure? Hmm. And I think this trip has been the first real trip I've taken since the pandemic. Yeah. So it's yeah, been, we, yeah. as travelers, this has been such a challenging time. Yeah. For, for people who thrive on, on going and doing, yeah. oof, it's been a tough couple of years. You know? And do you feel like, I mean, to the, to that poem you just read, do you feel like that you are looking back on your life in that way? I mean, what, what comes next for Jim? Like now that you've looked back and you've, you've, you've heard this, the footsteps of the leopard and you're looking forward in your life, what, what is it that you want to do next? What feels like it's next for you? I'm trying to figure that out. You know, having, you know, reached an age where my body doesn't take the abuse that mm. it used to. I still love to snowboard, but mm. I pay for it. Ibuprofen. And <laughs> sure, sure. so I've been thinking long and hard on that. I have a the Sprinter van that was our old trade show vehicle. And I've been kind of monkeying around with converting it into, you know, a van life thing that mm. whatever. And then I, I really think that exploring more of the Western United States, I know there's places I've never been to. And so I'm going to go seek out those less traveled places here for now. Sure. And then electric bicycles have kind of caught my eye in a way that I never thought I would. I'm like, I 
I used to be a Harley ride motorcycle loving <laughs> fool. And I'm like, my friends would laugh at me for wanting to ride one of them electric bikes, but there's something serene and peaceful about yes. them, you know, creeping through the woods and not disturbing the elk. And I've been kind of on the hunt for an electric bike. And there's a bunch of options. Oh my, just walking through the show pre, I was just blown away how fast it's advancing. And so that's kind of, you know, where I want to go. And then you and I were talking earlier about sailing and I have Mm. challenged myself to always face my fears. And one of the things, you know, being a a reconnaissance brain, I'm not afraid of the water, but I'm like the deep blue is still like the big ocean with the storms kick up on a boat is kind of, for me, is still kind of like, wow, you know, it's all inspiring and humbling for sure. I did a dive trip out to Cocos Island where we did the crossing, you know, 40 Mm. hours and pretty heavy seas and deep, you know, deep diving nitrox once you get with the sharks and stuff. And sure. And so, yeah, the, I miss the ocean. That's one oh. thing I'll say. I never thought I would live in Montana. My, mm. As long as I have, I never thought I'd live away from the coast. Mm. So I do miss the ocean at times. And, uh, and I would love to like maybe put that last fear to rest. Not that I'm yeah. totally afraid, but I'm respectful of the ocean because I've seen its power. It's incredible. When Brian and I did that, that crossing, we were a thousand miles from land at one point and we were becalmed. There was no wind. So we were just sitting there kind of bobbing in the sailboat, thousand miles from land. The closest land was Hawaii and it was 16,000 feet of water below us. Good Lord. And we decided that we were going to jump in. And the first time, I don't think I really recognized what was happening so much because it was just the the thrill of jumping in the water. The next time I jumped in, I dove in as deep as I could go. And I could see all of the columns of light coming down to this point of black below me and the transition from the warm water on the surface to this very cold, very unforgiving, very foreign place for a human to be. Uh, yeah, I got back to the surface pretty quick. And it was this recognition that yes, we're on this boat that's designed to go around the world, but we are very fragile creatures in that space. And so you're right. It is a fear for sure for many of us. When you dive a lot, you know, it's like you get nitrogen narcosis Mm. and that is the rapture of the deep. Mm. And it's very tempting to swim off into the darkness. That's why you never dive alone. Interesting. And I didn't know that. I've never done any diving like yeah, that. Yeah, blood, your blood saturates with nitrogen and Interesting. laughing gas. And you start to get a little lightheaded. And, gotcha. Yeah. You're in the moment too yeah. much. Yeah. And you can like follow the fish down. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. A couple questions that come to mind for me that I like to ask is, are there any significant books or maybe inspirational people in your life that have shared something with you or a podcast that you've enjoyed listening to? Uh, what are what are some ways that you get inspired? I've read a lot of the classic literature. Um, and, and crazy enough, when I was younger, I read a, a lot of Robert E. Howard, the, he, the creator of the Conan series. Okay. was a something I read a lot when I was in my teenage years, I, you know, just great adventure style books. Mm. I just, and I think he's a forgotten author these days. Sure. People realize uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, all those. And then of course the Africa books, you know, yeah. that, you know what's one of your favorite Africa books? Um, the Sunbird. Okay. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but it's a great book. It, it flashes back between future time and present time Okay. an ancient society. Oh, wow. Um, he's a famous author and it'll, it'll come to me after we're done. Sure. Oh, we'll put it in the show yeah, notes. People, people know who it is. So yeah. for me, theory books on, on manufacturing and process, mm. I like nerd out on that. And mm. like, and I love to see all the connections between how things work. And so it's one of the reasons why I love being a manufacturer. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's like process improvement or the whole pursuit of optimization and perfection. But for me, I don't want to compromise quality, right? So sure. it's all like the Toyota production system. That's why I'm like kind of a Toyota nut. Sure. I, and, Kaizen, lean manufacturing, right. TMS. Sure. So I love theories and, and you know, whether and I may not understand all of them, but I just love reading the books and, and trying to find a connection, how I can apply that to real life. Mm. And, um, for me, that's, and I do see that with you. You, 
because TMS is so much about not only this emphasis on quality, durability, and reliability, which are the hallmarks of the Toyota brand, but it also is towards this minimalism and doing more with less and less waste. And I see that, I mean, you've talked about that in your manufacturing process, and you've also shared that with me about your life is that you travel very minimally and you don't bring a lot of redundancy and you try to not get distracted by a bunch of extra gear. Yeah. It's frees you, right? Is it, you know, if you're a younger traveler and you're just kind of starting out in the world and Mm. you can get, I've seen people get too wrapped up in the whole gear chase Mm. and planning and all this. And I get phone calls from people, Jim, you're the only person I know that can go in a week's notice. You want to go to Italy and blow glass? Absolutely. Sure. Passports up to date. I'm out of here. Next thing you know, I'm in Murano sitting with the masters that taught my teacher. Wow. And that's rare access, but you have to be able to say yes. Mm. And Africa for me opened up in much the same way. It was my cooking that Mm. got me invited into the inner circle of these trips and stuff because the, the, Safari lodges are always like labor or whatever. Yeah. Not everybody wants to be in the safari lodge and they want to get out to the outlying camps. And so my friend Hama's like, you can stay. And I'm like, really? As I called home on the satellite phone, Hey, uh, they want me to stay. How long? Uh, three weeks. Okay. And I'm, and again, that's, you know, you go through Atosha, you know, and, and we would camp in places we're not supposed to, you know, like you're camping wild. Right. That's why the leopard stepped by, you know, and and Heather was a dead Impala camp and he went in that night and got it back, you know, and I laid awake at night thinking me might come bite me on the top of my skull, but you know, (laughs) eventually I fell asleep. So be it, you know, yeah. what an amazing life you've lived, man. And, and how can, how can people find more about you and about Red Ox? I'm pretty much an open book. You can go to redox.com, R-E-D-O-X-X, and I've blogged some of my stories, the dive stories, the safaris. Yeah, you've got some great resources on there. And I like to be, you know, share what I know and, Mm -hmm. or give me a call. You know, we can can talk and give you some good tips on what to pack and what where to go. And I've got great friends here and there, and you can hook up with them on the trail and visit them and say hello and have a cup of coffee. Well, thank you, Jim. As always, it's been a pleasure to know you for the decades that I have. It's been so impressive to watch you build your business in such a sustainable way, employing Americans, American manufacturing, high quality equipment. Uh, that's certainly something for all of us to aspire towards. Uh, and thank you so much for being on the podcast, man. Hey, Scott, you guys have done an amazing job with everything at Overland. I'm oh, thank you so much. We're, as well. we're, we're grateful. We thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next time.